Hi, and welcome to Global Impact, everybody. <laughs> we are on the fourth season <laughs> of the show. And by the way, happy birthday to my co-host, Michael Borsicu. How old are you? Thank you very much. Are you going to tell us how old you are? Uh, it's great to be uh, 50 again. <laughs> well, why don't you go for 40? I think you, you look more like 40. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, sorry, it's uh, blushing. Flattery uh, uh, will of, get you everywhere. Lack of air circulation. <laughs> <laughs> right. So today we are going to go international and uh, we have a very special guest. Uh, we're going to go to Ukraine. We're going to travel, time travel, you know, through Ukraine right now. Uh, it's 7 a.m. here in L.A. and we're Vancouver, right? You're in Vancouver right now. Correct, Vancouver Island. It's pretty early, but uh, we made that time because whoever is coming, um, it has a lot to say. It's very important. And I think a lot of people would want to hear what he has to say. On that note, let's get into the bio. Sure. So we have a very special guest from Ukraine, and uh, he happens to be the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, his name is Dimitro Kuleba. I hope I haven't uh, butchered the name. And he's not a typical diplomat. Um, so let's go into his bio quickly before we get him on the show. Um, he's, um, well, at 40 years old, he's one of the youngest uh, international diplomats to come out of Ukraine. And he's also a best-selling author and was awarded with the title of Best Ambassador of the Year by the Institute of World Policy. Uh, not only that, but as a Minister of Foreign Affairs, he is now his father's boss, which is very unusual. Yet his father is currently serving as Ukraine's ambassador to Armenia. On the job just uh, a year and a half, uh, the number of files he, he inherited provide for a heavy workload. Um, they range from the 2014 illegal annexation of Crimea by Russia and the occupation of eastern Ukraine by Russian-backed rebels to the resolution of the shootdown of Ukrainian airlines PS752 over Tehran last year. Uh, he's also, but he became minister just as the COVID-19 pandemic began to spread around the world. So he's, um, yeah. And it's kind of heavy in Ukraine right now. The pandemic is really bad. So not an easy year for him. Uh, Michael, would you like to keep going? Sure, not an easy year indeed. Oh. So before uh, he became minister, uh, Mr. Kaleba headed an effort to pull the foreign ministry out of the Stone Age by introducing concepts of digital diplomacy, strategic communications, cultural diplomacy, and public diplomacy. Uh, he is currently lobbying very, very hard for Ukraine to become a member of NATO and for full membership, of course, in the European Union or the EU. Uh, just this week, in very threatening language, Russian President Vladimir Putin said allowing Ukraine to join NATO would represent the crossing of, quote unquote, a red line. Um, why should we pay attention to what happens in Ukraine? Well, many analysts say the country of more than 43 million people should be regarded as one of the most strategically important in the world, given how it sits as a buffer between Russia and the West. All that said, at the moment, Mr. Kuleba probably has one of the toughest jobs in global diplomacy at the moment, and we are grateful that he has taken time out of his very busy schedule to speak to Global Impact. All right, Vita Yemo, Monsieur le Ministre des Affaires étrangères, and welcome to Global Impact. We are on the fourth season, and this is the third episode. 
So as you know, this show is not a formal show. It's more about, as I was saying, you know, it's more about um, getting, having our audience to get to know you personally and then connect the dots so they don't have to. We're just helping people basically. So let's dive in into the beginning, you know, where you started. So from our research, your dad is a diplomat and you grew up basically uh, traveling a lot. Uh, your dad is an ambassador. And how was that? Did that um, prepare you to become yourself, to, to, to become a career diplomat? And was it tough on you, all the traveling that you were experiencing when you were a child? Well, it is true that I grew up in, in the middle of diplomacy mm -hmm. since 1992 when my father abandoned uh, a proposal to work in Moscow for the big, uh, for the for then Ministry of uh, Gas and Energy. Mm -hmm. And actually, well, it, now, it, it is Gazprom now. So uh, if he had stayed in Moscow in 1991, mm. I could have been a son of a Russian uh, gas oligarch. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, oh, wow. I, was, I was more like, I was more lucky because my, my father had uh, always had a very strong sentiment towards uh, his roots and towards our country, towards Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So he did not hesitate in uh, 1991 when he received uh, a proposal to come back and help uh, a new independent country. Okay. So we went back. His salary uh, at that time uh, was five, five US dollars per month just to give you an understanding of a, of a diplomat, of a Ukrainian diplomat in 1991. Mm -hmm. uh, miserable years in terms of uh, quality of life, but uh, it was uh, my chance to start living, as I said, to start living in the middle of diplomacy, basically from my uh, teenage uh, mm -hmm. years. And uh, I'm extremely grateful for my father, to my father for that. Um, I I still remember, you know, my my generation of Ukrainian diplomats do not does not remember uh, the last pre-independence generation of diplomats, and I do remember them as a child, as a child of a diplomatic family. And I'm very proud of this knowledge because it helps me to connect generations in our system and to continue this institutional, to, to, to ensure this institutional uh, continuity and uh, uh, legacy mm -hmm. of previous generations of our diplomats. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that, uh, for that experience, for that time. Uh, though I must tell you that uh, in my uh, last year in the university, uh, I, I studied for I studied international law, mm -hmm. and I uh, won internship at one of the leading Ukrainian law firms. Okay. And so I went, when I went there, I saw uh, a state-of-the-art office building and office premises. Uh, everyone inside was wearing nice suits and dresses. Uh, everything was really cool. Beautiful women, beautiful men, mm. uh, and I thought wow, maybe I really should drop the idea of becoming a diplomat and return, going back to this uh, 
old-fashioned building and to low salaries uh, and instead choose a profession of, uh, of, of a lawyer and be rich. Mm. And I, I did have this hesitation, but then I thought, no, you, you know, you, you had a dream and you have to accomplish it. You have to, you have to make it. What through. was the dream, Minister? What was the dream? Professionally, my dream was, was to be a diplomat. Okay. And what did you, when you were that age, when you were younger, what drove you to want to be a diplomat? What, what was the purpose? Did you have like a calling or did you feel like you had to be just a diplomat or did you have a vision? Well, um, for some reasons, I was uh, bold enough to think that I can do this job better than other people, than many other people. Uh, no, but seriously speaking, um, there was a moment when my father served as uh, in in the in the Ukrainian mission to the UN, mm. in Vienna, to the UN institution opera head uh, stationed in Vienna, in Austria. Right. And uh, I remember he coming him coming from uh, his his work and. Uh, he would drop a line to my mom like, uh, well, it was a difficult day. I had to speak on behalf of the country and participate in a debate. And it was pretty hot and tough. And as a teenager, you like think, wow, you speak on, on behalf of the country. You represent the country. You defend interests of a 50, then 50 million uh, nation. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think this is this makes my profession very special. That on the one hand, it's a huge responsibility to mm. speak on behalf of your country and to take risks of making decisions uh, in the interests of your country. On the other hand, it gives you this uh, incredible drive from inside. And uh, the third element, you know, I was I I was grown by I was raised by my parents always with this idea that the best thing you can do in life is to serve your people and your country. It sounds very naive, probably. No, it's not. When, I we, think speak, it's... when we speak in 2029, uh, in, in 2021, but I can recall dozens of times when my mother would say, you know, serve, serve the country, serve the people. This is ours. We have to be part of it. Mm -hmm. and my mother is a teacher of Ukrainian language and literature, so you know, maybe she got all these uh, idealistic ideas from uh, Ukrainian literature and history and, and, uh, and um, poems and novels. But I would say that these three elements formed my uh, dream uh, of becoming a diplomat, like to, to, to speak uh, for the country and to represent the country. Right. Uh, to have this drive of uh, making good for your country and uh, bearing risk, you know, taking risks and maybe making decisions. And third, it's actually this kind of to serve the people that you belong to. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this because uh, I think people need to hear that. It's very important. Um, you know, there are so many people right now who feel very down with the situation, you know, the pandemic and everything. And um, hearing you sharing your personal story and uh, you know I'm, I'm sure it's going to inspire a lot of people you know to want to do better and to serve and to get back together and unite um and i think um yeah thank you for those words i think it's uh, it was very uh, very nice
Michael. And uh, Minister, from my side, Bitaimondo uh, Japremno. I'll pop in a question here. I was thinking about it when you were talking about diplomats and salaries. Um, Yuri Klufas, who you, you probably heard of here in Canada, he described the job of a Ukrainian diplomat these days as very difficult. And he put it kind of in this way is that, say, you have a meeting in Brussels or whatever. Uh, the Russians or the other uh, counterparts with much more resources tend to show up sometimes days before, have proper sleep, <laughs> meet with other counterparts. But because of the uh, limited resources of a country like Ukraine, they tend to show up almost the day of the meeting, maybe tired, a little bit stressed, and it's no match for these other guys with more resources. Uh, has th have things improved for your, your, your staff, your diplomats in that regard? Um... Yeah, I mean, we all heard, we all learned how to live with uh, with pandemic, and that's the message. I'm I, that's the point I'm making uh, in uh, in many negotiations. I'm saying, guys, I mean, we cannot uh, use pandemic as an excuse for not doing diplomacy. Pandemic cannot kill diplomacy, and we should not allow that to happen. Uh, from a diplomatic perspective, uh, pandemic. And I do not want to sound cynical, but it will be an honest statement. Pandemic gave diplomats an excellent, unquestionable excuse not to do things they are not willing to do. So it's like, oh, I'm not coming because uh, we have to wait until the pandemic situation improves. Uh, let's postpone consultations because we have to wait until pandemic uh, situation improves. Mm. This decision, this decision cannot be taken because of the pandemic. I mean, in diplomacy, I've heard this phrase in, in 2020, I heard these phrases so often in the first six months that uh, I threw my diplomatic politeness away and started telling other ministers, foreign ministers and foreign representatives uh, who had used kind of, who had resorted to this argument that guys, I mean, stop stop doing this. It's either you want to do it, well, then let's do it. If you do not want to do it, just tell me. That's fine. I'm fine with, with, with that answer as well. Uh, so um, uh, I think we lost a lot of time, uh, not only Ukrainian diplomats, but diplomacy as a whole lost a lot of time because of pandemic, because of using, because of using pandemic as an excuse. And uh, the second thing is, uh, of course, uh, doing um, doing VTC and online conferences uh, and online events, consultations. It works, but only to a certain level, because if if it's if because no uh, online meeting can replace a real meeting between ministers, because you do not get this chemistry, you do not get this. Uh, you know, level of trust when you know that it's only you and him or you and her and you can speak things freely. Mm -hmm. But every time that pandemic uh, was taken under control, um, I'm immediately telling all of my people travel, spend uh, travel budgets, uh, go abroad, uh, invite people to come here do as many personal meetings meetings as possible but uh, pandemic should not uh, be used as an excuse for uh, not doing diplomacy and that's that's my approach
stage. Sure. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And I have to say your uh, um, esteemed ambassador to Canada, I think is one of the most well-traveled uh, ambassadors here in Canada. We've even seen him way over on this end of the country. So we're happy to have him. Um, Minister, on that point, I, I did have one more question about your personal life, but um, you uh, and President Zelensky and the delegation traveled to the UNGA, the United Nations General Assembly this year, which has been described as the annual Super Bowl of diplomacy. If I'm not mistaken, a few uh, months ago, the UN, uh, the US delegation to the UN discouraged uh, delegations from coming to New York because of the pandemic. Did you show up because it's really a choice between uh, becoming obsolete or actually being in person and getting things done? Um, we came because uh, we had uh, three important bilateral meetings confirmed. But I hope no UN official will watch this uh, this episode uh, and and will not think, will not hear me saying that. The <laughs> The delivery of the speech at the UN General Assembly was less important than was not a sufficient reason to come to New York. But uh, I think you, the United Nations uh, are doing a great job in some spheres, uh, in some areas of its responsibility, but uh, at the same time, uh, um, it's failing. Uh, on the most important mandate it was entrusted with, which is uh, peace and security. And we, as a country at war, feel this extremely, extremely well. Um, if we had not had a war, no, if we didn't have a war in Ukraine, I could have spoken more mildly and more diplomatically about it. But uh, you always feel this uh, so painfully uh, when you see your own country, your nation going through all these things. And um, I'm afraid that the, the, the General Assembly will suffer as a platform uh, because of pandemic, because many countries will actually uh, realize that it's fine when you're not going there, mm -hmm. that nothing happens if you just pre-record a statement that the sky does not fall on earth and that uh, um, pandemic did uh, um, shatter a reputation of uh, the UN General Assembly as a must-be effect, uh, event, must-be event. Uh, no, I saw I was sitting there and watching all this video, pre-recorded videos by presidents and it works perfectly the same way. So unless you have some important bilaterals in New York or you miss New York too badly, you can always skip General Assembly. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the reality that's, uh, that's and the feeling that I got from this visit to New York. Uh, no, great answer. We really appreciate your candor. Uh, just one more quick question on the personal side before I hand the mic back to Melissa. Uh, I didn't know this, I should have known this uh, from our research. We uh, were reminded that your wife is actually in municipal politics in Kiev. Can we call you guys a power couple and with all the travel and work that you both must have, is it sometimes difficult to manage the time? No, we are, we are two separate uh, political entities uh, united by marriage. Uh, 
that's uh, that's how I can, can that's how I can describe uh, our relations. We made a completely different uh, uh, political careers, I would say. You know, I was uh, I went through all phases and I made all steps in diplomatic career from attaché to a diplomat uh, to ambassador and then to becoming a member of the government and foreign ministry minister. So it was kind of my conscious decision to take this path and walk it. Um, my wife, uh, she was a civic, uh, she was an activist. She, uh, she was always, she always worked in the field of arts and art management. She was like a curator and art manager. But 2014, the revolution of dignity made a big change to our lives because I decided to go back to civil service because I made, uh, I left civil service in 2013 during Yanukovych times. It was a very dramatic moment and going back to where we started from, you know, my mother was crying after I told her that I'm leaving civil service and I'm not going to be part of the, of the public service anymore. But um, 2014 changed all of us and Genius uh, launched an initiative helping uh, local communities to, you know, to take care of themselves, basically, and to, to, to learn how to work with uh, local authorities and central government to get uh, everything they need from them to have good services, good public spaces, and good uh, good life in their community. So she was, uh, she started this 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 career, um, and then one day she was offered to become a member of the city council. And she, you know, if I want to do more, I have to take this responsibility. And that's how she became a politician. So we always respected each other's choices. Uh, or the choices we were making, you know, in building our careers. She always supported me. Uh, I always supported her. And I'm happy with uh, what she achieved because she definitely deserves that. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Melissa? Well, you are also one of the top uh, youngest, I'd say, um, diplomats in the history of Ukraine. And... Um, Here's my question, because a lot of the time when we look at political people, we see we tend to see people who um, are mostly seniors, you know, and who have had a lot of experience. So do you personally feel that um, <clears throat> did you face any obstacles from your senior peers being that young and being in that position? So basically, you are asking me whether I ever su ever suffered from ageism. In yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I didn't want to say it like that, but yeah, since you said it, <laughs> have you? <laughs> well, um, it is true that throughout all of my career, uh, my bosses, my then bosses, were saying uh, he is too young for this position. Yeah, they always entrusted me that position. They, so I, uh, I always felt they, 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 they had a risk. I mean, they felt a risk of giving me a job, which is usually being done by more experienced diplomats, but I never let them down. Okay. Uh, and, uh, that's how I was climbing the, the ladder, the ladder of career. 
Right. And uh, so the question is uh, whether I suffered from it. No, I didn't. But mm -hmm. it is true that I was always being told that, Dimitro, you are too young for, for, for this job. But I was getting this job anyway. So uh, it's kind of, uh, kind of worked mm. uh, in the end. And I, I really appreciate, and if you count uh, my uh, school and university years as part of my diplomatic life, because my father was diplomat at that time and I would yeah. still follow uh, the, the thing, then I'm not that young, you know, if you add that age. Right. Those, those, those years of experience. You still, so, I mean, you're still in the younger range considering, I mean, we have more and more now younger people. I mean, our president in France is, it's around your age, right? <laughs> you know, when uh, when I when I when I see headlines in in, in uh, on, on on websites on New mm. South Wales, mm. which read uh, the latest uh, thirty before thirty, the best thirty before uh, thirty, or uh, the best uh, uh, the best artists who are younger than thirty-five, something like mm -hmm. that. I'm now forty. I cannot uh, apply for any ratings. I, I can. <laughs> I cannot recognize the best anymore because I turned 40. So and there are no ratings for someone over 40. So I'm, I will. So you are feeling the pressure. <laughs> I thought it was just a woman thing. <laughs> I cannot be recognized the best simply because I'm over 40 now. That's unfair. Oh, <laughs> okay. well, uh, I mean, you don't look 40. I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed uh, personally, but I mean, um, it's interesting because um, I think it's a, it's very much a, a woman thing, you know, ageism tend to be a female and we never think that men could actually go through this. So, um, but you just, just proven that through experience and um, just passion and hard work, it's about the result in the end. It's not about what you look like. And also you, you're, you're, you're in a generation where you, you experience a lot. Your parents went through a war. You went through the second revolution. So you, your actual, um, you went through a panel of different things. So you have a wider scope because the old generation, you know, like um, they tend to be more stuck up, you know, into the past and traditions. Having someone younger, is more relatable for the new generation. And I think that's important, but particularly when it comes to um, to foreign affairs and diplomacy. We want to have somebody we can relate to, who we can listen to and feel like we're close to, that understand the issues. And uh, I think that's uh, that's a great step. I'm glad that now in politics, you know, they're being more open about um, you know giving a chance to younger people because they have a voice now, and you know. I, I, I fully share what you're saying. Um, I personally, I never suffered from ageism, mm -hmm. but uh, I understand, but this, this approach that I shared with you, mm. uh, people were like making jokes, oh, he's too young for this job, uh, but they were still giving me that job and I never let them down because I always mm -hmm. delivered on what uh, mm. I was, taught me a very important lesson uh, that is now extremely helpful when I became a minister because I am not looking at the age of a person. 
whether he is over or she is over 60, for example, or uh, below 30. Yeah. My only question is, can you deliver? Right. And if you can deliver, I will find you the most appropriate uh, uh, position in the ministry that will balance uh, both interests of the system and interests of your personality. And uh, this is so, I appreciate those jokes actually, because they taught me this thing that, you know, I was in that position. And uh, I, uh, I know how, how you feel when people, uh, when you are capable of doing something, but people do not trust you mm -hmm. because you're young. Yeah. This, this is the, the discrimination that kind of, uh, that, that exists. And uh, so in my, in the way I run the ministry, I'm, I'm making this point that we should not be over-focused on gender equality only. I'm a big fan of gender equality, but everyone is talking about it on every corner. We should focus on equality as a principle. And age, you know, gender equality, age equality, uh, this, uh, or, uh, the, 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 these are equally important things. Yeah. And we have to, because we have to balance. The most difficult thing is not to balance ages. The most difficult thing is to balance interests of the system, which I mean the, the, the machinery of the ministry yeah. and personal interests uh, and ambitions of the people who serve it. Yeah. This, is, this is the real, uh, you know, the real science, mm -hmm. the real science. Yeah. science that uh, I have to deal with in, as, as foreign minister. Otherwise, all genders and ages and nationalities are more than welcome in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. Great. <laughs> and I, I have to say in my recent travels, well, not even recent travels, travels over the past couple of years at least, um, meeting your ambassadors and, by the way, your Ambassadors and embassies have been very hospitable and helpful to me, I've got to say, but I'm seeing a kind of new generation of diplomats, very professional, uh, more females. Your, one of your top diplomatic posts, Washington, D.C., is uh, filled by a very uh, <clears throat> accomplished female, as you know. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Melissa to shift us in. Sorry, go ahead. That I want to mention just to do some self-advertisement. Uh, when I became foreign minister, we had four female ambassadors in the system, four. I have been foreign minister for like a year and a half. We now have 14. Wow. Wow. And you know what is the most surprising thing about it? Now I am starting to hear voices criticizing me. They are low, quiet voices, but they now, <laughs> they. They, they do exist, criticizing me for being too gender oriented. But uh, my point is that, you know, to ensure equality, uh, one may have to uh, prioritize inequality for some time, you know, to give priority to women, to create this balance. And then this will be the same for everyone and priority will not be given. But we have spent so many years in, uh, uh, in, in conditions of inequality yeah. that women simply cannot win their seats in the first row on equal terms. They cannot, they cannot win them if they play uh, on equal terms. So we should give them a priority. And that's what I'm doing. But when I create the balance, I will make it uh, 
absolutely equal for everyone, irrespective of, of gender. Sorry for just wanted to finish. Not this. at all. I was warned not to ask this question, but since you brought it up, uh, you have a very important decision to make to fill an ambassador ambassadorial post here in Canada. Are you going to give us any hint, or we should wait? Uh, well, I'm uh, I nominated a female ambassador to Ottawa. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, we I look forward that. to welcoming her. I feel um, in, my, in my element right now. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get uh, ask Melissa to transition us to EU membership. But before we mm -hmm. do, uh, all of those telephones next to you, are they direct lines to Berlin and Paris <laughs> and presidential office? Or? Best direct uh, line to Paris and Berlin is WhatsApp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here we go. This is okay. what happens have someone from a different generation. Messenger. <laughs> I'm just uh, making the point about the importance of uh, sure. online messengers yeah. in policy. Right. Okay, so let's now dive into Europe. Let's fly to Europe and talk about the EU. Can um, we stay in America? No? I am LA. <laughs> So I need to get back. I haven't been back home since the pandemic. So I miss, I miss Europe, but um, we'll see, you know, things are probably going to get better, hopefully soon. And um, we'll be able to travel more. But on that note, um, so I have a question for you, Minister, on, um, okay, so Ukraine is a beautiful country, okay? It has four, more than 43 million people. It's the second biggest country in Europe. Lots of resources. It's known for its brains and grains, has great agriculture, um, gas, rich resources, um, smart and beautiful women and men, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Haven't met many Ukrainian, but so far it's good. And um, why? What's going on? Why is it like? Why is it taking so long for Ukraine to be fully part of the European Union? What's going on here? Well, we both, Ukraine and the European Union, share responsibility for that. Okay. Uh, Ukraine has not been consistent on a number of issues, uh, reform-related issues. Uh, required by the European Union, but at the same time, the European Union has uh, has never has not seen Ukraine as a few as an eventual part of it for decades. Okay, and it is only now that I see this idea uh, becoming more uh, widespread. I wouldn't say popular, but widespread in, in, in the European Union. Mm. On the other hand, it clashes with uh, uh, some very important EU countries who do not want the European Union to expand at all. The problem is the following. Um, by, a very, by the very nature of uh, the European Union, it has to expand. It cannot stand still. This is because the expansion is the dynamics. Expansion is the, the movement forward. And I keep repeating this, these words on every corner, and I will not waste an opportunity to repeat them here, that to play big, Europe 
has to get bigger. This is this is my kind of founding principle of my of how I see our relations with the European mm-hmm. Union. And uh, today, as we speak, we see uh, in the news that uh, EU is unlikely to deliver on its promise to Western Balkan countries to uh, integrate them. And this is something that was promised to them on a number of occasions. It was taken for granted for years. Hmm. Ukraine was never promised a membership. That's important to know. Uh, And yet, Western Balkans are facing a situation where their integration will be basically put on hold. The issue here is that if you do not expand into a certain territory, someone else will expand into that territory. And that will create a lot of turbulence. So my point is very simple. Uh, If the EU does not expand, it will be getting weaker. And this is something it can allow to happen uh, domestically in the in that part of Europe that is covered physically by EU member states. But it will then it will be vanishing away as a global power. Right. And for Ukraine, it creates risks and challenges in the region because uh, we need. EU here in Ukraine for the safety, security, and prosperity of this nation. Mm. We and and what we are ready to pay for that is to make a contribution to uh, EU strength in global uh, global affairs and its ability to play as a global power mm-hmm. and in expanding its. Uh, rules of security and safety further to the east. I think it's a fair deal, but unfortunately not everyone in the EU think, shares my opinion. But do you think that maybe Brussels is, um, is afraid of provoking the Kremlin by giving you, making you part of the um, you know, European Union? Well, uh, Brussels is uh, is a consolidated, you know, reflection of uh, various uh, approaches and perceptions existing in EU member states. So I think the decision about the membership of, of Ukraine in the EU is not made in uh, Brussels. It's made in Berlin, in Paris, and in one, two more capitals. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we have Berlin and Paris on board, I'm sure that everyone else will immediately follow. So, and why Berlin and Paris uh, are not making that decision, it's exactly the reason that you mentioned. Gotcha, okay. Well, that's a great, great segue into our next question. Uh, A previous Global Impact guest, the renowned French commentator, Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet said, Germany will always set the tone for EU policy would you agree with that, especially given the recent uh, uh, changes in, in Germany politically? Well, what is always? I mean, uh, in the coming decades, yes, I think that that will be true. I think France feels uh, that it is uh, equally capable of playing that role and setting the tone. 
Uh, I think uh, EU um, Central European part, Central European part of the EU is raising the voice as well. Uh, Europe, the European Union is facing a number of challenges uh, related to leadership, related to the issue of leadership. Who is the leader? What does leadership imply? Mm -hmm. And how can you strengthen the leadership or uh, and avoid uh, seeing how it weakens. Um, so um, I, I appreciate our relations with Germany. I mean, Ukraine-Germany relations. They are in, on a good track. The same goes for France, for example. <clears throat> it will not be an exaggeration to say that Ukraine's relations with France are at their best since 1991. This is true by a number of parameters. Mm -hmm. But we are not, we still haven't reached the point where Berlin and Paris will uh, consider Ukraine on its own merits and not as part of their Russian policy. And this is the strategy. Mm -hmm. As long as Ukraine will remain a part of, uh, of the Russia strategy, we will be suffering from inadequate appreciation of this country and inadequate analysis of what this can country what this country can do and can contribute and i know i do not sound diplomatic enough but this is exactly the point i'm making in both berlin and paris stop seeing us through the prism of russia if you do that you will see a completely different country a completely different perspective and completely different set of benefits for both and gains for the European Union and both of you if uh, we get closer to each other. Thank you. And it's not really a question, but as you know, diplomacy is a fine art also of examining nuances. I remember at the Normandy format meeting in Paris, your predecessor was there, but uh, it made some headlines when we saw Vladimir Putin pull up in that ostentatious, bulletproof, whatever you call it. Uh, Macron hugged him, but all President Zelensky got was a handshake. So that was that was interesting to watch. Uh, Melissa, I think you had a question about- Yes, uh, well, talking about President yeah. Macron and France, let's go back into the US a little bit. So, okay, so we all know there's been a fiasco exit of the US from Afghanistan. I mean, that's just, um, that happened recently. And the recent diplomatic incident between France and the US on the submarine deal that just happened also like the past few weeks. So <clears throat> we also know that Zelensky was invited to the White House, you know, by Biden administration. Um, he was actually here it's three weeks ago, right? If I uh, recall. Um, it's a hard question, but I think it needs to be asked. How can you trust how can Ukraine trust um, the Biden administration when they easily can turn against their ally as it was the case in, with France? I mean, how do you feel about all this? <clears throat> One of the most famous advertisements, you know, says impossible is nothing. So I think diplomats have to work under the premise that impossible is nothing or everything is possible. And, uh, but the job of a diplomat is to minimize uh, 
opportunities for others to sideline you or to ignore you or not to take your interests into account. This is the job of a diplomat. You cannot, all, like in sports, you cannot win all the time. But it doesn't mean that you have to give up competing and you have to give up fighting. Um, we deeply appreciate the role of the United States in uh, uh, strengthening and in building Ukrainian independence since 1991. It goes without saying that today the United States is Ukraine's political and security ally number one. Mm -hmm. This is the statement of the fact. Uh, and our job is to make sure that this, uh, uh, that no other countries, no other country in the world can create such foreign policy circumstances or offers United States something that can shatter this status, mm -hmm. uh, in the current status in Ukraine-US relations, or block it from uh, block these relations from advancing for, from advancing further. Mm. Um, I regret seeing what happened. It's particularly striking because we had uh, an excellent conversation. Uh, in Washington about the importance of alliance, uh, alliances and partnerships. But in the end, all nations are driven by their ultimate national interests. And this is the rule. Life of diplomacy is even more cynical than uh, a life of a common man on the street. And um, uh, you know, one of uh, our first, our first foreign minister, Minister Zlenko, who is a real kind of titan of Ukrainian diplomacy, a real patriarch, if I, if I may, uh, he once said that uh, it's normal in diplomacy. Unfortunately, it's a norm of life in diplomacy to pass by a drowning man. Mm. But if you stopped and offered your help, then you have to do everything in your powers to uh, uh, provide that help to the drowning man. And that's life, it happens. And it's a work of diplomats to learn lessons and to first be driven by their national interests, but also to uh, make sure that other countries which are important for your country they understand that interest yeah. and they never, never let it let you down on it. Oh, great, great, great answer. Um, I had one more question on the heavier side and Melissa, maybe we should jump ahead after that to the uh, rapid fire questions. We hate to miss out on that. No, unfortunately. You have to go? <laughs> in, in like uh, five minutes. Okay. Melissa, why don't we do the rapid fire? Let's do it then. Okay. <clears throat> so, your favorite destination to travel? Uh, my home. It's like 300 meters away from my uh, office. 300 meters away from your office. Nice. <laughs> okay. Well. Next. I love traveling, but I hate traveling as foreign minister. I hate business traveling. I yeah. love uh, traveling for pleasure. Uh, with your lifestyle, that makes sense. 
because you've been traveling a lot. So staying home is, is a luxury, right? <laughs> it is, it is true. Right. Michael? Um, okay, this minister has a question where there's no room for any uh, gray areas. Verenike, also known here as uh, perohe or pierogies, fried, baked, or boiled? Boiled. Okay. In Ukraine, boiled. Always. Okay. And uh, boiled by my my by my grandmother. Ah, excellent. <laughs> I have to try these. I've never tried uh, pierogies. It's like a raviolis, yeah. right? It's a form yeah. of ravioli or something. Similar. Pretty much. Yes. Melissa, with all my sympathy to you, you embarrassed us. This is not <laughs> nothing close to pierogi. This is Ukrainian vareniki. And the best one is done with cherry, with fresh cherry inside and eaten with sour cream. And now you are, I personally invite you to Kiev and I will take you to the best, to the restaurant with best cherry stuffed vareniki with sour cream in the entire universe. Well, I accept the invitation because I need to be cultured on Ukrainian food for sure. <laughs> I want to try that. All right, on a um, different one. Um, hmm. Your favorite actor, actress, and why? It's uh, a good point. I actually, you know, I'm not watching too many movies. I live without a TV, uh, without television since 2008. Mm -hmm. Liberate choice. Uh, because I think that there's too much of television in, in our life and it basically rotten your minds. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so I go to movies from time to time, but I'm not a big kind of uh, a big uh, movie fan. The movies, I can tell you the movies which I like the most recently. Uh, I really loved, uh, um, what is the name of this, The End Game. Uh, Avengers, Avengers, the Avengers, yeah, yeah. Because I have a son who is 15 and he took me to this movie uh, and I agreed to go because I want to stay connected with him. It was not because of my interest in the movie, but I thought right. I should share what he likes and what he admires with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually loved it. I even cried, you know, at some point. You at did? Some <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's sad. I guess it is sad. Um, until that, I was I, I, I was crying watching uh, cartoons like Cars, you know, all this all nice <laughs> nice stuff you how to live your life. But uh, I really loved Avengers: The End Game, oh. and uh, uh, I also like watching uh, you know this kind of uh, art house movies. Uh, mm -hmm. Independent. Yeah, independent, independent mm -hmm. movie, a different kind of uh, perspective compared to blockbusters. I'm going to have but to invite you here in Hollywood yes. and get you <laughs> get you to brush up your you know your uh, your movies yeah. and you know maybe you should come here to a premiere and experience yeah. it. Before you visit Ukraine, I will take I will bring a portion of frozen vareniki with cherry wood. <laughs> She's the luckiest so, girl on earth right now, I'm telling that's you. That's a deal. <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite role model, someone who has really influenced you? I, I appreciate everyone I have met through my life, you know, mm -hmm. throughout my life, especially former foreign ministers that I worked with. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of my father, professionally. He is uh, a respected uh, man by, because of his professionalism. And, uh, but if I look back in history, I think that the person that I really like, I don't, I'm not sure he's a role model, but it's someone whom I like, someone who, whom I uh, admire uh, professionally, uh, it's Winston Churchill. Mm. Okay. And we both like cigars, so I feel that I have something in common with Connected him. Connection. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a fun question for you. You are tall. Macron is short. Does height matters in international diplomacy? <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, in diplomacy, every country is equal, irrespective of its size and population and the volume of its economy. And the same applies to the leadership of those countries. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer. Very diplomatic answer. <laughs> Finally. Um, with you. So one last question and I really have to run because I will be late okay. for... Okay, so I'll, I'll take this one for Melissa. Um, so upon your exit uh, from uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, whenever that happens, what would you like to leave behind for your country as a legacy? Uh, I want to have uh, a strong foreign ministry because Ukraine, in this world, Ukraine can count on its diplomacy and on its army. And I want to have a strong, I want to, to make my contribution to building a strong Ukrainian diplomacy. I want uh, to see a growing, uh, a sufficiently higher volume of export of Ukrainian goods globally, because this is what we are working on. We are helping our exporters and we want uh, them to make more money and to bring them back in the country. Mm -hmm. Third, I want to leave a Ukraine at peace and with a clear understanding that it is strong enough to defend itself and to ensure and to, to, to win respect by of, an, of any other country in the world. Wow, what a fantastic legacy to leave. Minister, um, thank you so, so much on behalf of Melissa and myself and all of our listeners. And by the way, on your... Um, a point of popularizing Ukrainian uh, fantastic uh, products and things like that. I am wearing my Ukrainian made suit. And then tonight at my birthday dinner, I'm going to be serving Ukrainian wine. Wow. Never tried it. Is yes. your birthday today? Yes. Oh, Michael, congratulations. Happy birthday. I'll be back in Kiev in November. Let's go for that uh, beer and cigar or wine and cigar then. Uh, Melissa, if you want to say thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Sorry, you said something? Kiev in November. Yes, Kiev in November. Maybe we'll bring Melissa along for those cherry veranike. Right. All right. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much, Minister, and for taking the time to answer all these questions. It's been a pleasure and a very fun time. Surprisingly, I wasn't sure what to expect, but it was really nice. It was. And uh, I wish all the best to Ukraine. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm, I was happy to see Michael. Uh, it was my great pleasure uh, to meet you, Melissa, and I'm serious about both invitations. So... Well, I'm taking them seriously and We'll work on that. <laughs> yes.
So, Melissa, that was really great talk. I, I think that uh, we have seen a side of Minister Kuleba that many Ukrainians haven't even seen. He was relaxed. He was funny. He, you know, philosophical. So. Very relatable and open. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it just shows a side of politics that people don't get to see. I mean, prior being political people, people are human beings too. They have lives, they have feelings, passions, dreams. And I, I'm so glad that he shared that with us. You know, he shared about his background, what his motivation, um, yeah, and his dreams for his country. And I think that was very inspiring, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, some ears uh, will be picked up in Berlin and Paris and other capitals when they hear what he has to say as well, especially about EU membership. So, yeah. um, and, and so we, I got my invitation, so. You got your invitation and we got <laughs> a hint too, the next uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Canada is gonna be as well. That's quite a mm. achievement, well, we almost call it a development, but the, the, the increase in female ambassadors from, I think it was four to 14, that's huge. Yeah. Um, so we thank him very much. Uh, we'd also, uh, uh, coming to the end of the program, would like to thank our wonderful, wonderful producer, Pretty Valley in London, who is so great at arranging guests, finding guests, preparing them, preparing us. So we're very, very grateful uh, to her for that. She's the and, power, she's the yeah. power behind the throne. Absolutely. So <laughs> yes, the power behind the joint throne. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, thank you. And thank you to you, the dear listeners. Mm -hmm. And uh, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share because we want to keep going with this. Uh, we want to connect the dots so you don't have so to. So you don't have to. Okay, that was delayed again. You always miss <laughs> maybe, that one, Michael. What's maybe next on? time, yeah. The timing is off, but we'll right. get it right eventually. We'll get it one of these days. We'll yeah. have like many episodes to go, so. So um, let's use our native languages. I'll say thank you and diakoyo. Merci beaucoup. And, and um, we'll see you on the next episode. Um, do we know which guest we're going to have, Michael? Uh, we advertised already uh, a guest uh, coming up to talk about the leisure and hospitality sector. Mm -hmm. um, but things uh, as in global politics or diplomacy tends to shift sometimes. So it'll remain perhaps even a little surprise. Okay. Uh, as uh, always, someone again, someone who will help us connect the dots. Correct. Yeah. All See right. So. Okay. All right. I just I just lost that one. <laughs> All right. Take care, people. Take we'll care. see you on Take the care, next everyone. show. Bye. 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 All the best. Bye. All the best.